In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made, and without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to, the, gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was not in the world, he was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of hum human decision, or a husband's, or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory and the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes before me has surpassed me because he was before me. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Thanks so much for reading, uh, Jack. Oh, move that out of the way. There we go. Wonderful. Well, let's pray as we come to these uh, wonderful words. We, we are, it feels like, in some ways, standing on holy ground this morning as we think about the very being and nature of God and the Son. So let's pray that the Spirit would help us. Heavenly Father, what a privilege it is that you have opened up some aspect of your being to us. Eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And though we are finite creatures... Lord, please help us to comprehend something this morning, something that will leave our hearts rejoicing, humbled before you, full of wonder, awe, and fear. May your spirit be at work in these coming moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, in the build-up to Christmas, this is where we're going to be. In these 18 verses of John chapter 1, we're going to go through them slowly, we're going to take our time a few verses at once this morning. It's just really verses one and two. So why are we doing that? Why are we going so slowly? Well, I think it's simply this, that we can enjoy meditating, contemplating the glory of the sun. And in contemplating the glory of the sun, we will see that we get to meditate and contemplate on the glory of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In John 17, towards the end of the book, Jesus is praying to his father, and he says what he wants for his people. What does he long for them? Well, many things, but this is one. 
John 17, he says, Father, I want those you have given me to see my glory. This is what these opening verses of John give us. A taste of it. They show us something of the glory of Christ, the glory of the Son of God. And I know this may sound a little bit lofty. Sounds like we're going to be thinking about ideas and doctrines. Sounds like there'll be not much by way of application. You know, what, what difference is this going to make to my life? What's the take home for this? And, you know, good sermons, they, they should have some of that. This is how it's going to change your life. But I wonder if the application is simply this from these sermons. To get to the end of these four weeks and think, do you know what? I know Christ a little bit better than when we first started. This time of year, um, Laura and I try and get away for a day. You know, I plan it and organize the childcare. And, 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 you know, and I say, look, we're going to go. We're going to have lunch together. We're going to have dinner together. Just, just you and me. And, and what if she responded by saying, you know, well, that's great, but what's in it for me? What, what am I going to get out of this? You know, if you, if you, a friend invites you to spend a day with them and you're thinking, okay, well, what are the objectives of this meeting? What, what is, you know, what's the kind of cash value for me? What, how am I going to, how's this going to improve my life? Of course, that's not what you're thinking, is it? It is to spend time with them. That's the whole point and purpose. That's what we're doing in these next four weeks. Beholding Jesus, spending time in his presence, seeing his glory. But... As we behold Jesus, as we grasp something more of his glory, it will make a difference. It will change us. John Owen, 17th century theologian, he wrote a book called The Glory of Christ. It's very long. Lots of words in it. But at the beginning, he said this, and it'll be on the screen, contemplating the glory of Christ will carry us cheerfully, comfortably, and victoriously through life and death and all that we have to conflict with in either of them. You think, John Owen, that's a bit strong, isn't it? Cheerfully, comfortably, victoriously carried through life and death? Well, my hope is that you'll understand what he means over these next four weeks. Let's think about this. First of all, in our first point, there is something behind everything. There is something behind everything. Now, before we contemplate the glory of God in the glory of the Son, Jesus Christ, let us just spend a moment thinking about the alternative. Listen to 1 verse 1. In the beginning. Now, I've said this before. The way you finish that sentence is one of the most important decisions you'll ever make. In the beginning, right at the start of all things, is what? What is in the beginning? Carl Sagan, astronomer and presenter, in the 1980s, he released a TV series called A Pale Blue Dot. And uh, it, it comes from the uh, Voyager satellite, just as it was leaving the solar system. One final transmission to turn back and take a picture of Earth. And in the picture, Earth is this tiny pale dot. One pale dot. And in the, the intro to, to this TV series, A Pale Blue Dot, Carl Sagan said this, The cosmos is all that is or was or ever will be. The nitrogen in our DNA, the calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, 
The carbon in our apple pies were made in the interiors of collapsing stars. We are made of stardust. That is a way of looking at the world, isn't it? That is an alternative to what the Bible presents. It's a way of finishing that line, in the beginning was the cosmos. Or in the beginning was just stardust. That's all there is, that's all there was, and all there ever will be, stardust. And of course, that view, there is no glorious God to behold, only stardust. Well, it has implications, massive implications for for what life is. If there was no intention, no purpose, no design, no agency, no meaning in the beginning, then there is none of those things now. Not really. Oh, we can pretend we have meaning and purpose, but we don't really. In the 20th century, this view, this way of thinking about the world really took hold. I was hearing someone talk about Samuel Beckett's play, Waiting for Godot. It was first performed back in 1953. And the play is about two characters, Vladimir and Estragon. They are waiting for someone called Godot. But Godot never turns up. And the Godot character, although Samuel Beckett never said this, most people agree that it represents God. Vladimir and Estragon, they wait day after day, but Godot never shows up. And as the play goes on, the pointlessness of it all, the waiting and the waiting, kind of leads to despair. Vladimir wonders how he can carry on, and he says, we have time to grow old. The air is full of our cries. Despair. What's the point of going on? How do you go on? And then he says, but habit is the great deadener. Habit is the great deadener. When God doesn't show up, if God isn't there, what stops you being overcome by despair? How do you go on in that kind of world? Habit. Yesterday, you woke up, you had breakfast, you went to work, you came home, you ate food, you went to bed. Your habit, that's the only thing that keeps you going. Habit is the great deadener of despair. Now, look, I know this is bleak. Why am I spending time here? Because there will be a time, I suspect, when Satan will try and tempt you away from God. And he will try and make life without God sound glamorous and amazing. It will be freedom. It will be liberty. It will be joy without guilt. Do not believe it. It will be this. In reality, this is what you're really embracing. If in the beginning is only stardust, stardust is all there was and is and ever will be, then life is random and chaos and meaninglessness. And what will stop you being overwhelmed by despair? Habit. You don't think about it. You just keep going. You don't think about it. You just lose yourself in social media or Netflix or video games. You just plan another holiday. You buy more stuff. Anything to deaden the crushing reality. There was no meaning in the beginning. There is no meaning now. And there never will be. 
It is bleak. In the beginning is just stardust. But wonderfully, into that darkness and that despair, John 1 verse 1 bellows to us, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was something. There is something behind everything. There is purpose. There is meaning. There is order. There is a story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. So who is there in the beginning? Who is the something behind everything? Well, that's our second point. Let's leave the despair behind and behold the glory of Christ. Jesus Christ, eternal God and eternal Son. John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. Now, it's an odd title, isn't it? Word. Why does John call Jesus the Word? But there are lots of reasons. One profoundly theological reason that I came across this week, and I'd love to share it with you, but I just couldn't think how to, how to do it in time. So you can ask me about it later on. But there are a few other things that we can say about why John calls Jesus the Word. Partly because in the culture of the day, the Greeks thought that word or, or logos, that is the, the Greek word used here, they thought the logos was the organizing principle behind everything. The, the, the logos was the something behind everything. And John is saying, well, look, let me introduce you to that something. It is actually a someone, Jesus Christ. But also, word is about speech, isn't it? Word is about revelation, The God who stands behind all things is not hiding. He is the word. He is speaking. The one who makes himself known to us. That is Christmas, isn't it? The God of the universe saying, here I am. This is me. The word. Well, let's take a closer look at the word. First, he is eternal God. In the beginning was the word. And John here isn't saying, look, go back to the beginning, and when everything was being created, you will find this being. He was the first thing that was created. That isn't what he's saying. No, he makes that clear in verse 3. All things were made through him. The word isn't the first created being. He is the creator of all. The word is eternal. Put it another way, before the beginning of all things, the word already was. The word was uncreated. He has eternally existed. And if you're thinking about categories, that puts the word in the God category. Imagine a table with two columns, and one column is headed uncreated, the other column is headed created. The only being in that first column is God. To be uncreated, to be eternal, is to be God. Everything else is created. Everything else goes in the second column. So the word then is uncreated. He is eternal. He is God. And just while we're here, look, think for a moment about some of the other distinctions between those two categories, created and uncreated. The word is uncreated. Everything else is created through him. The word is independent. 
He does not depend on anything or anyone to exist. He is life. He has life in himself. But everything else depends on the word for its existence. Everything else in creation is upheld by the power of his command. You and I exist because the eternal word holds us in his mind. If he didn't, we would vanish in an instance without trace. The word is independent. He has life in himself. The word is unchanging. Of course he is. How can you change from a state of perfection? Everything else changes. It grows, it withers, it ages, it dies, but the word never changes. And the word is infinite. He is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. Whereas everything else is limited. We are limited in our power. We are limited in our knowledge and our wisdom. We are limited by time and by space. The eternal word is the eternal God, the uncreated creator of everything. These opening verses in John's gospel, they are remarkable, unlike anything in the other gospels. They are wonderful. The, the way that they describe to us Jesus Christ. But then, that's odd, isn't it? Because John hasn't actually told us yet that this is Jesus Christ. In fact, he doesn't get round to telling us who this is until verse 17. He spends 16 verses talking about this person. And not until verse 17 does he tell us it is Jesus Christ. Why is that? Why hold back? Why not say right from the start, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was Jesus Christ? Well, maybe because John wants us to think rightly about Jesus. You see, our problem is that as soon as we hear the name Jesus Christ, we so quickly think about his humanity. We can't help but see him mainly through that lens of being a human being. And of course, Jesus is wonderfully, fully human. But sometimes that's where it stops for us. We kind of have this view of Jesus that he's some kind of superman. But he is first, fully and eternally God. And so before John gives us the name Jesus, he is saying to us, make sure when you think of Jesus, you think eternal word, eternal God. When you think of Jesus, think unchanging and unchangeable one. Think without beginning and without end. Think all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-wise. Think infinite in love. Think Holiness, dwelling in unapproachable light. Think light of light, true God from true God. You see, before Jesus is even born, before he says anything on earth, before he takes on a human nature, before he heals and saves the world through his death, before any of that, he is the eternal word, eternal God. And you know what? That means he is worthy of our worship, whether or not the incarnation, the taking on of a human nature ever happened. 
Stephen Charnock, another 17th century theologian, he put it like this, the greatness of his person is more excellent than the salvation purchased by his death. The greatness of his person is more excellent than the salvation purchased by his death. If the eternal word never became flesh, if the eternal word, the son of God, he would still be worthy of our lives. He would still be worthy to demand our souls and our all in worship towards him. Jesus is the eternal God. Second thing you want to see here is that Jesus, the word, is the eternal son. Now, here's where things get tricky. Verse 1 again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is where our minds start to hurt. The Word was with God. Okay, it sounds like there was a, another person alongside God right there in the beginning. Maybe someone important, but, but different to God. The Word was with God. But then John says, and the word was God. And you think, well, which is it, John? The word was God or the word was with God? Because it can't be both. But John is adamant. It is both. The word was God in verse 2. He was with God in the beginning. So how can it be both? Well, here we hit mystery here we hit such glory, such wonder that we cannot fully grasp it. We can't really even come close to grasping it. There was a period when Eliza and Elijah at home, they, they would hear something or, or learn something that, that kind of just was amazing to them. First time they heard it. And they had this little action. They would kind of say, mind blown. <laughs> that is the kind of territory we are in here. Very quickly, our minds are blown when we come to think about God as triune. The Word was God. The Word was with God. So what can we say? Well, here are some things. There is one God, one divine being, who is all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, the uncreated creator of everything that exists. There is one God. But that one God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And even now we have to be careful. Because as soon as I say person, I know what you're thinking, because I'm thinking it as well. We're thinking that God is like three friends coming together. Barry, Dave, and Bill. Barry, Dave, and Bill come together and say, Do you know what, let's do life together. Let's organize our lives together. Let's have the same purpose, the same plan. That way, we can accomplish more. We can get more out of our life. Barry, Dave, and Bill, three friends acting like one. But here is some good news. Our God is not like Barry, Dave, and Bill. Our God is not three persons working together as one. There are not three minds in God. There are not three wills. Not three centers of consciousness, independent of each other, but, but ultimately deciding to work together. That is not our God. No, our God is one. 
He is one intellect. He is one mind. He is one center of consciousness. And that one will, one intellect, subsists or resides or exists in three persons. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is one. So in what way is the Word or the Son distinct from God the Father? Well, only in this. It is the Father who eternally begets or generates the Son. It is the Father who eternally pours his divine essence, his divine nature, his divine being into the Son. And it is the Son who is eternally begotten, who eternally receives the divine essence from the Father and then reflects that glory back to the Father, the glory of his nature. As Hebrews 1 puts it, the Son is the radiance of God's glory. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. That means in the eternal Godhead, as the Father beholds the Son, he sees the glory of the one true God through the Spirit. And as the Son beholds the Father, he sees the glory of the one true God through the Spirit. And as much as this blows our minds, there is something brilliant, something beautiful, something wonderful that we can say. In the beginning was this God. At the heart of the universe is this God. Behind everything is something, this God. And and in this God, there is truth, there is knowledge, there is love. A perfect son, eternally generated by the father, loved with a perfect love. A father who looks upon his son and sees all his infinite goodness, his infinite fullness, his infinite beauty, and he loves it with a perfect love. Peel back the curtain of reality. Go back to the beginning, if you like, and what do you find? You find infinite joy and love, infinite beauty, expressed in infinite wisdom and power, reverberating and reflecting around and around from the Father to the Son and the Son to the Father in the Spirit. Truth, love, beauty, goodness, life, those are the things that are at the heart of reality, existing in the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's something, isn't it? At heart of reality is not nothing. It's not despair. It's not darkness. It's not chaos. It's not brokenness and heartache and meaninglessness. It is love. It is truth. It is beauty. It is life. It is wisdom. It is joy in God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those are the things that are eternal. Those are the things that are more real than anything else. Sadness, suffering, death, darkness, misery, disappointment. They will all pass away 
They were not there in the beginning. But not these things, not beauty, not love, not goodness and truth and life, because in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. And now what John Owen said, maybe, maybe it begins to make sense. In the midst of the confusion and chaos and madness and pain of life now, contemplating the glory of the eternal Son will carry us cheerfully, comfortably, and victoriously through life and death and all that we have to face. We don't need to spend each day trying to deaden the despair. Instead, we can spend each day awakening that hope, the joy, the certainty, that life is ultimately good and beautiful and true as we behold our eternal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You know, with young children, sometimes you drop them off somewhere when they're very young. One or two will just stroll on in. You know, they're the life and soul of the party, even as a three-year-old. But, but, but some, most are more nervous, a bit more tentative. And they'll take a few steps forward towards where the party is. And then they'll look back. And they'll look back at their parent. And they say, oh, the parents, their mom's dad, they're brilliant. That, that encourages me. That, that comforts me. And so they go on. And maybe they settle in. And maybe they start playing. But, you know, mom and dad stays around. And they keep looking over. Oh, mom and dad are still there. Brilliant. You know, I think that's something of what we want to be doing most days. Looking, beholding, thinking upon this God knowing that at heart there is this wonderful reality at the center of all things, a God full of love and wisdom and beauty and joy and truth. And whatever it is we are facing, we can behold him and look at him and know that's where I'm heading, the glory of God. That's where it will end. It's going to be okay. Jesus Christ. Eternal God, eternal Son. Finally, Jesus Christ, eternal God in the flesh. So John Owen is right. Contemplating the glory of the eternal Son will carry us cheerfully and with comfort through life. But it's not just contemplating the glory of the eternal Son. It is the eternal Son himself who brings us victoriously through life. In John 1 verse 14, John tells us that the eternal word, the eternal God, becomes flesh. He takes on a human nature. And then we're given his name. The eternal God, the eternal Son, is Jesus Christ, verse 17. And I want us to notice a couple of things about Jesus' name as we close. Jesus, that part of the name, means God saves. It's what Jesus came to do, came to save. Christ, that part of the name, means anointed one. That's talking about how Jesus saves. Because in the Old Testament, there were three kinds of people who were anointed. Got the references in your handouts. Prophets were anointed. And their role was to reveal God's truth, to make God known. Priests were anointed. And their role was to make a way for God's people to approach this God, to be in God's presence. 
and kings were anointed. Their role was to lead God's people into the fullness of God's promises, the abundance of life that God had promised. Prophet, priest, and king, together they were to bring salvation to God's people. But it never happened. Nobody was ever able to fulfill those roles until Jesus comes, the anointed one, our prophet, priest, and king. And it is because of who he is, the eternal God, the eternal son, that he can be those things perfectly. Jesus is our prophet, the living word of God. He can perfectly reveal God to us. Jesus is our priest, and as the eternal son who has come from the father's side, he can bring us into the closest presence with God. And Jesus is our king. As eternal God, he has life in himself. He is able to bring us into the deepest and most abundant life. So you see why we spent so long thinking about who Jesus is. The eternal word, the eternal God, the eternal son. Because when you know who Jesus is, then you know that he can perfectly fill the role of prophet, priest, and king. Then you know that he can save us. Played a bit of football in my time, and playing football, sometimes this kind of thing can happen. A striker gets injured, and you have to bring on a substitute. Um, and it's a, you know, it's a difficult game, and you're, you're, maybe you're losing or something. And you look over onto the side of the field, and you see uh, the, the, the person warming up to come on, and your heart sinks. Because the person waiting to come on, let's say they're a little bit on the larger side, just putting a cigarette out clearly a bit hungover from the night before, and, and you feel, well, that's it. If this is going to be our striker, then we've got no chance. But imagine you look over on the sidelines, and you see Lionel Messi warming up, ready to come on. For those who don't know, one of the greatest strikers in the world, Lionel Messi. Well, first you're thinking, why didn't we play him from the start? That would be my first thought anyway. But then secondly, you're thinking, brilliant, we've got this. Victory is ours. Before Jesus comes, the position, the the office of prophet, priest, and king, it is vacant. And there are promises made of a great prophet, a great high priest, a great king who will come and bring God's people into the salvation that God has promised. But who is going to fill that position? In John 1, you look over to the sidelines and you see who's waiting to come on. The eternal word, the eternal God the eternal son, Jesus Christ. He is the one coming on to be our prophet, our priest, and our king. And your heart sings. Here is someone who can show us God and bring us to God and bring us life. See why we spent so much time thinking about who Jesus is? The eternal word took on flesh so that he could be our prophet, our priest, and our king, so that he could be Jesus, God who saves us. We started by saying in John 17, Jesus longs for us to see his glory, to behold him. That's salvation ultimately, isn't it? And as the eternal son, Jesus is the one who, as our prophet, priest, and king, can lead us into that glory. 
In the end, it is the eternal Son who will bring us victoriously through life and death and all that we have to conflict with in either of them. And because he will victoriously bring us through those things, then contemplating on the glory of the Son will bring us joy and comfort and victory as we wait to behold him in his glory. A moment of quiet, and I'm going to pray.